Hello. In today's episode, I talk about a couple of very specific strategies that help with negative emotional states. That's fancy jargon for how to feel better when you don't feel well. And so there's a couple of tools that I regularly recommend to the founders that I work with, to the patients that I work with, that are easy, that are straightforward, and that really help to reset a bad spot from the inside out, kind of from your body into your mind. So in today's episode, I'm going to talk about breath, like the practice of taking deep breaths, breaking that down for you. And then I'm going to talk about the practice of a a sensory walk or the ability to change your internal state by changing your external state. And the audio for today's episode was originally recorded as a Facebook Live for the Healing Addictions page. My friend Eric Kerr and his team have put together a fantastic collection of resources for people who are working to support someone who are struggling with addiction or who are recovering from addiction. So you hear a little bit of that that bent in the audio, but these techniques certainly are not limited to addictions. They're not limited to people with significant mental health challenges. They can be used in daily life for any kind of state when you want to change how you feel. So I hope these are helpful. I also wanted to mention that These techniques are things that we talk about as part of the Zen tribe curriculum. And I have a new tribe that is starting at the very end of February. So if it's something that you are interested in or curious about, please reach out and talk to me. It's a group of, small group, eight entrepreneurs who are gathering together weekly for eight weeks. We do take a break in the middle to talk about factors related to relationships, mindset, overall health, and as we are talking about in this episode, how to deal with tricky situations or tough emotions. So I'd love to talk with you more about that if that's something that you might be interested in being part of. All right, here we go. Welcome to the Zen Founder Podcast. This is a place where we have conversations about mental health and entrepreneurship. We have a pretty broad conceptualization of what mental health means, sometimes depression, anxiety, sometimes relationships or physical health. The goal here is to bring some calm into the crazy roller coaster of ups and downs that is life for many entrepreneurs. I'm your host, I'm Dr. Sherry Walling. I'm a clinical psychologist and an entrepreneur, married to an entrepreneur, live in the world of entrepreneurs, and I'm so pleased that you have joined us for this conversation. Hello, I am Dr. Sherry Walling, and I am so happy to be here with you on the Addiction Healing Addictions Facebook page today. I'm going to talk a little bit about using our breath and our body to cope with negative emotions. So I'm a clinical psychologist, and I spend a lot of time with people who have very high-intensity jobs. A lot of my training is also working to help people who have a history of overwhelming experiences of trauma. Um, early life trauma or adult onset trauma, who are trying to put their lives back together and rebuild a sense of self, rebuild a way of being in the world that, that feels you know healthy and well after having something super terrible happen to them. So I, of course, think a lot about how we cope with hard things. And certainly um, addiction is something that comes up in my work quite often as people are looking for ways to alleviate pain and people are looking for ways to cope with emotions and feelings that feel terrible and overwhelming. Addiction is super complicated. So I don't mean to say that people 
are drawn towards addictive behaviors or addictive substances for only one reason. But I'm going to talk a little bit about the reason that I sort of deal with most often. And that is to numb or alleviate or cope with things that are that are pretty painful. So our emotions live very much in our bodies. And you know, in sort of older systems of psychology, we used to really think about the mind as very different from the body. And we're pretty wrong. <laughs> you know, if you've watched any of the other interviews that Eric has done, you'll hear that there's this deep understanding or, or new understanding of the deep integration between the mind and what happens in the rest of our bodies. Of course, we're learning more and more about the role of gut health and nutrition and sort of our gastrointestinal and digestive systems in what we think of as mental health, that all of those systems are deeply integrated and shape the way that we cope with the feelings that we encounter and the way that we experience feelings. So we have these amazing systems within our bodies that help us respond to overwhelming things. And of course, if you spend any time in therapy or working as a, a clinician or working with people who are highly stressed out, you're quite familiar with the sympathetic nervous response, which is the part of our bodies that goes into hyperdrive to help cope with some kind of threat. So when we feel like we are in threat, that our safety is being confronted with something that has the potential to do us danger, then our bodies have this amazing mechanism to protect us. And none of you will be surprised. I know all of you have been stressed out at one point or another, but when we are confronting a negative stimuli, something that's scary or threatening, our bodies have a way of elevating our heart rate, of making our breath or respiration shallow, fast, of moving our blood flow to our major muscle groups. We move, the blood flow sort of moves away from our digestive tract, away from our brain into our big muscles so that we can run or we can fight or we can respond to a threat. And of course, this system works super well if you are encountering a threat to your physical well-being because you need your body to protect you. But what's happened for many of us in, in sort of our, our modern world is we experience threats that are not necessarily physical. They're, they're psychological, they're emotional, they're experiences of pain, they're experiences of violation. And sometimes our major muscle groups are not the things that we most need to respond to those kinds of threats. But regardless of the nature of the threat, many of us live in a life or a lifestyle where we are pretty constantly under a lot of stress. And when that happens, that sympathetic nervous system just goes, 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 and just doesn't really have much practice at calming down or at restoring back to a baseline of calm relaxation. And of course, we have a part of our body that is good at doing that too. That's the parasympathetic nervous system. That's the part of us that sort of restores everything to a calm baseline. And that is the part of us that we most want to tap into when we're experiencing stress or an emotional reaction that feels overwhelming or we're kind of dwelling in a sense of negative emotion. And we'd, we'd like to be able to change the way that we feel or the way that our body is responding to something that's hard. So the parasympathetic nervous system is really amazing. And I love talking about it and helping people understand it because it's something that is 
pretty accessible to us. It's kind of an easy system to hack if that language makes sense to you. The parasympathetic nervous system is kind of driven by something called the vagus nerve. And that is one of the longest nerves in our body. And it connects right here at the bottom of our brain and cerebellum. And it goes all the way through our spinal column and it has contact points with pretty much all of our major organs, our digestive system, especially, and our respiration system. So what is really helpful in kind of hacking our emotional system and being able to calm down or restore a sense of physiological homeostasis is to be able to access that vagus nerve and communicate through our body to our brain that all is well. We can turn off the emergency response system. It's time to turn off the sirens and the flashing red lights and it's okay to go back to a relative state of sort of homeostatic safety. The best way to do that, the best way to communicate or infuse our system with a sense of calm and safety is through really slow, low, deep breaths. And I just want to pause for a moment and kind of acknowledge that I think we've misused this a little bit. You know, how many of you have said to a kid or somebody who's upset and just been like, just take a deep breath. You know, we kind of treat it as this really nonchalant, like easy thing to do. Like just go take a deep breath and everything will be fine. It's kind of true, kind of not true. We've we've trivialized it a little bit. And I think we've made it sound like it's really easy to just calm down by taking a deep breath. And what I have found in my practice over the last 15 years is that cultivating the ability to calm our bodies is a deep skill. It's not necessarily natural. It's not something we should say flippantly. It's not something that we should take lightly because we are intentionally intervening in the interconnectivity between our body and our brain. And that's kind of like some like super superman like superhero kind of stuff to be able to to short circuit or to hack our system. I guess we're not really short circuiting it. So all that to say the ability to take low, slow, deep breaths is a deep skill and not something that we should take lightly, but something that we have to practice and carefully cultivate if we are going to be able to use it when we most need it. It's fine to take a couple deep breaths when you're like sitting at home in your easy chair and nothing really terrible or upsetting is happening. So we have to practice the skill so we're able to use it when it's hardest to use it. We're able to calm down when everything around us and within us is saying, no, 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 alarm bells, alarm bells, alarm bells. So how we do this, or a couple of simple ways to think about this, are to move our breath to the opposite end of the spectrum from what we would need if we were going to be in fight or flight. So in fight or flight, we're usually breathing really fast and we're breathing really shallow right up here in our chest. We want the, sort of the fastest route from our nose or our mouth to our lungs. And so that means a lot of like chest breathing. To activate that parasympathetic system through the vagus nerve, we want to bring our breath all the way down through our bodies. I realize you can't see my belly, but all the way down to our belly button. So if you are, if you're in a place where you can do it, you might just want to take one of your hands and place the palm of your hand right over your belly button. And as you inhale, see if you can expand your belly in such a way that your hand moves out away from your spine. So you kind of imagine like there's a balloon in your belly and you're filling it with air. I realize that's not totally physiologically correct, but you understand what I mean. So as you inhale, 
your, your belly gets bigger. It expands. And as you exhale, see if you can watch that hand that's on your belly button and see if that hand can move in towards your spinal cord as your belly kind of contracts. This kind of breathing is used in yoga. Sometimes it's used in other forms of meditation and relaxation. And really what we're doing is that opposite action of stress, of making breath very slow and very deep into the central cavity of our bodies. So try it a couple times wherever you are. I aim for a four-second inhale, a four-second exhale. That's kind of easy for me to remember, four-by-four breathing. So inhale, two, three, four, and exhale, two, three, four. Having the ability to use this kind of breath when you need it, like I mentioned, is something to practice. And if you're someone who is in a place in your life where your stress is running pretty high and you are experiencing quite a lot of negative emotion because of you know things that maybe you can't control, this is one thing that you always have at least a little bit of control over how your body is functioning or how you are interacting with your body. So if this is a skill that you would like to practice or learn, I would just recommend setting a little timer in your calendar or on your Apple watch or in one of your, you know, many like fantastic devices that can remind you to do some four by four breathing, maybe three or four times a day. And at minimum, just taking four or five breaths is usually enough to create a little pause and to create a little bit of a reset that can help bring you back from kind of a spiraling emotional moment. If you are really in a place where you're pretty low in that spiral already and you're feeling pretty bad and pretty miserable, you might need longer. You might need a little bit more time, maybe five minutes of quiet breathing to help reset your body. One of the things that I like about this practice is often we think that we have to have a thought or a feeling first, and that dictates how our body reacts. And this is kind of coming at that backwards. It's using the tools of our body to help change the way that we think and feel. Because it turns out, as I've I've been going on and on about, there's a pretty deep connection between those parts of us. So I love deep breathing. There's a ton of research support for this. This is not just like hippy-dippy Dr. Sherry's strategies to chill. This is one of the very, very well-established tools that is used all around the world to help calm people down in the midst of overwhelming emotional states. And it's one that we so easily forget. And it's one that we might talk about with other people, but don't actively practice ourselves. So especially for those of you who are mental health professionals or who are in a helping profession, I want to give like an extra challenge to you to really integrate this into your day a couple times a day this week and make sure that your ability to regulate your own emotional system is as strong as it can be. Because of course, your ability to regulate really determines how effectively you'll be able to meet people where they are and help other people regulate their emotional system. One of the other things that I find so interesting about emotion is, of course, it's very contagious. So when you are stressed or agitated, you're contagious in a sense. You bring that into the room with you. And you know, we also know this the other way. When someone is upset or angry, we instantly kind of feel that 
push towards anger within ourselves. And I think the more that we can be aware of our ability to physiologically regulate emotion, we can then sort of use like a Jedi mind trick to bring our own sense of calm into whatever room, into whatever context, into whatever conversation we're entering. Certainly we can't control other people's feelings or other people's reactions. I'm not saying that we're not actually Jedis, although that would be amazing. But to be aware of at least some ability to help other people co-regulate or regulate their emotions along with your emotional process is pretty powerful. So we talked a little bit about breath. Uh, I talked a little bit about just the awareness of integrating your emotional well-being with the emotional well-being of someone you might be in a room with and how that is a sort of co-constructed process. One of the other techniques that I wanted to talk about a little bit as it relates to helping yourself or someone else cope with overwhelming emotions is the power of the walk. And once again, I think this is something that we sort of flippantly throw around as like, oh, you're upset, go take a walk. You know, I feel like we say this to like teenage boys all the time, just go go take a walk, go take a walk. And again, we do ourselves a disservice when we minimize the power of this kind of practice. And when we're kind of flippant with our, our recommendations, but we do have, again, this sort of power to access the vagus nerve through sensory stimulation. So moving to a different context, moving to a different environment, and slow, gentle movement that usually, yes, involves slow, low, gentle breath. So when we're walking around the block, most of us are sort of walking at a gentle pace I'm not talking about sort of speed walking. I'm not talking about walking for exercise. I'm talking about walking for calm. And walking for calm involves slow breath, a relaxed, gentle pace. And then I really like to add in a sensory awareness component. So as you're walking to promote calm, you're thinking actively taking in, this is what I see noticing the colors around you, noticing the shapes, noticing the environment, noticing, looking to notice new details that you might be overlooking when you're walking more directively. What do you hear? Listening for sounds, for birds, for wind, for different kinds of engines, if you are in an urban context. Noticing what scents come into your system. What do you smell? Is did a street recently get repaved or is jasmine blooming or, you know, I'm here in Minnesota and most of, most of life is frozen right now, but there are still scents that, that are in the active environment. And what you're doing when you're doing this sensory walk is you are engaging other parts of your brain. Once again, we're, we're sort of doing the opposite. We're calmly noticing sensory data, which is, which is a parasympathetic activity. We're not looking for threat or we're not seeking specific threat cues. We're open-mindedly, open-heartedly noticing what's in our environment, which is a different or opposing neurological process to that that we would use when we were in fight or flight. So let's see, we talked about sight, we talked about scent, obviously feeling, notice sun on your face or a chill wind or even how like a a cozy coat feels against your skin, paying attention to all the information that your skin is taking in and just sort of cataloging it, noticing it, noticing what you hear. I I think I said that one already. 
what tastes might be present? Do you have sort of a leftover minty taste from toothpaste or from gum that you chewed or sort of a coffee remnant, which I am often sporting? So I think when we walk for 10 minutes at a slow pace where we're really practicing noticing what's going on in our environment, and of course, many of you will identify this as a mindfulness exercise. I didn't invent it. Most brilliant things are not very new. We are communicating to our mind, again, through our body, that all is well, that it's okay to go slow, that it's okay to look around, it's okay to notice. We don't have to be sort of heads down, directively responding to a threat. And that is a great way to reset our emotional life. And to kind of soften whatever rigid bits of us may be responding to something that feels scary or overwhelming or sad. You know, we're not just talking about fear. We're talking about kind of the full range of overwhelming and tricky emotions. So the more that we can practice noticing our emotional states and recognizing that they are not in concrete, they're not overwhelming, they don't have to be overwhelming, that we can use a number of sort of tricks and strategies to access our inner life through our bodies, through these very simple strategies, breath, basic movement. I think we can feel more confident in our ability to cope with hard things and confront hard things, whether that's hard conversations, it's hard memories, it's hard times of year, and feel that we can be more present to the things that are painful and overwhelming in our lives. And once again, I I am by no means making the claim that addiction is purely driven by, by sad or overwhelming feelings. But for many of us, that's a part of it, that we are seeking a behavior that helps jumpstart us out of a moment that we don't like. So if you're living in a moment in a feeling that feels unpleasant to you and you're pulled towards online shopping or pulling up the porn or, you know, having that third, fourth glass of wine, those are all behaviors that are seeking to alleviate discomfort. And those are behaviors that over the long run can become dangerous. They can be addictive. They can be problematic to our well-being, to our relationships, to our bodies. So noticing when that's happening, noticing that pull to escape, to numb, And instead of avoiding numbing, running, thinking about ways to tolerate walking into or to give our bodies more strength to cope with the things that are hard. So I hope that this was helpful. I know these are pretty basic skills, but I also get the sense that they're not skills that we are that great about using. So I... We'll be back here on the Healing Addictions Facebook Live next week, I think, next Thursday at the same time, and talking about something very cool that I haven't quite decided yet. But again, my name is Sherry Walling, and I am a clinical psychologist, PhD practicing in Minneapolis, and I hope this was helpful to you. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode of the podcast. In the meantime, feel free to check out zenfounder.com for lots of resources about the kinds of conversations that we have on the podcast. 
You can get information about working with me, about maybe joining a Zen tribe. It's sort of like a mental health boot camp for entrepreneurs. We also have lots of content on our blog, links to resources in our courses and books for sale. So check us out there and we hope to provide anything and everything that you might need to make the entrepreneurial life a little bit easier.